Welcome to Module 3 of Administrative Law at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. I'm Craig Forces. In the last two modules, we defined administrative law, and then I used a series of hypotheticals and the real case of Roncarelli versus Duplessis to illustrate some of the public law principles underlying administrative law. My purpose in this module and in the next is to trace the origins of Canada's public law system and reaffirm recurring themes in Canadian public law. Hopefully, you're already familiar with these themes from your earlier studies, but my practice is to refresh these themes. If you understand them, you will understand what administrative law is about, and that will help you digest the many details that will follow in this course. To start us off, there are, in essence, nine key principles lying at the heart of Canadian public law. The rule of law, parliamentary supremacy, sometimes also called parliamentary sovereignty, separation of powers, judicial independence, federalism, constitutional supremacy, democracy, human rights, and something that I will call the indigenous fact. Reliance on these principles is not the only way to build a public law system. Many states have chosen other paths, although increasingly most successful states gravitate towards variations on at least some of these principles. But we need to recognize from the outset that we deploy these principles in Canada not out of some particular genius, but for one key reason, history. Public law is nothing if not a product of history. And what history? Well, I will propose that contemporary Canadian public law represents a blending of several historical traditions. The most dominant historically is that of the United Kingdom. Not surprising, since for most of our political history, the entity that is now Canada was a British colony, or before Confederation, separate British colonies. But Canadian public law also reflects a distinct North American history, making it quite different from that of the United Kingdom. That North American history was reflected most obviously in the federal structure of Canadian public law. And also in 1982, that North American influence on our public law, and more specifically the American influence on our public law, was codified in a constitutionalized Bill of Rights, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The long and winding path inspiring the constitutionalization of individual rights and freedoms that limit the power of the state certainly originated in the thinking of European political philosophers, but it was really seeded as a true public law concept in the United States Constitution, and in particular, its Bill of Rights. I'll also propose that the North American dimension of our public law stems from what I shall call the indigenous fact. And what do I mean by that? Here, I'm using indigenous fact as a shorthand to refer to indigenous peoples and the fact of their presence in North America at the time of European assertions of sovereignty. Certainly, through the 18th century, 
the indigenous fact was openly acknowledged and shaped European conduct and governance during early colonization. But the changing balance of power in the 19th century meant that indigenous interests and the indigenous presence were suppressed in Canadian public law and suppressed for the better part of at least 200 years. As recently as when I went to law school in the 1990s, indigenous law was the subject of specialized courses dealing with such things as the Indian Act and First Nation treaties and taught also as part of property law confined largely to land use questions. It was not commonly treated as a broader public law issue. But to segregate the indigenous fact in such a manner is no longer tenable purely as a black letter law matter, let alone as a point of principle. And there are several reasons for this, but probably the most important is that in 1982, the same instrument that codified the Charter of Rights, that is the Constitution Act of 1982, it also amended the Constitution to specify that the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. And since that time, through politics, but mostly through Supreme Court case law, the Aboriginal and treaty rights have been interpreted and construed to the point where now no one can have a serious conversation about how Canada governs itself without acknowledging the Indigenous fact. And so in the next two modules, we shall trace these twin origins of our public law, the United Kingdom and the North American origins. And we shall do so in a roughly chronological and historical manner weaving historical event together with the nine public law principles to which I alluded earlier. This will, by necessity, be a perfunctory history, one with poor resolution, with all the pointy parts sawn off to smooth our passage through chaotic events. But it should be enough to ground your understanding of why it is that we have the system that we have in modern Canadian public law. We begin with the United Kingdom origins, and so we begin in England. And I should alert you, I assume in this module, that you understand the common law and its origins from your other studies. Also, a word to the wise. What I offer today is a grossly simplified and present-minded history that generalizes and simplifies greatly. Life is usually a lot messier than what I present. So first, the ancient United Kingdom origins. We have our public law system today in Canada because people in England got fed up with taxes, and more specifically the various conventions and documents that make up what is called our unwritten constitution arise in large part out of the struggle for power between the people of England through the vessel of parliament and the sovereign, often over taxation to finance wars. It's this history from medieval times to the 19th century that I'll trace very briefly now. In 1066, William the Conqueror conquered Saxon England at the Battle of Hastings and installed himself as an absolute monarch. Monarchs at that time were three things. They were sacred figures, they were warlords, and they were lawgivers. Now, the religious connotations of the king was a product of basically superstition and doesn't much concern us here. But the monarch's role as a warlord and as a lawgiver depended entirely on the monarch's military power and that power to ensure law and order internally. It was accepted that William, as a sovereign of England, would exercise detailed control over the initiation and practice of state policy. 
Over time, the powers of the monarch in exercising control over policy became accepted as part of the common law and came to be referred to as the prerogative. The prerogative was a source of the king's legal authority, and there was no legal check on this prerogative. In theory, the monarch could exercise that power as the monarch willed. It was discretionary and arbitrary power, limited only by the physical ability of the monarch to enforce it. And so in this video version of this module, I am portraying the size of the monarch's prerogative as a simple circle. The bigger the circle, the more powerful the monarch. Yet even an absolute monarch like William, unlike some kings to follow, recognized limitations to his powers, his royal prerogative, limitations established by custom. Before William the Conqueror in Saxon England, the monarch, perhaps in order to ensure cooperation by their subjects, was supposed to take advice from other members of the ruling class in English society on important matters, such as the making of laws and the imposition of taxes. When William took over after conquering the Saxons, he found it expedient to keep this tradition alive, and it became a feature of English political life thereafter. Monarchs would hold conferences that became known as Great Councils in order to take advice. The Great Council was a body comprising the largest landowners of the realm, not a representative body, and it dealt with important matters of state, especially those involving taxation. Now, the monarch also had a smaller council, called the Curia Regis in Latin, which ultimately became the Privy Council. This was a circle of close advisors to the monarch and included the Chancellor. Among other things, the Privy Council issued proclamations on behalf of the monarch, communicating the royal will to the people. The Privy Council also heard complaints from the people and acquired judicial powers in both civil and criminal cases. And eventually, with the passage of time, the council referred these cases to the chancellor and the court of chancery developed, applying the principles of equity. But the monarch could not govern only through the privy council. Kings after William got themselves into expensive wars and they came looking for fresh revenue from the great council. Not only were new taxes levied on the big landowners, the barons, taxes were also extended to include a new class, the so-called freemen, small landowners or knights. These new taxes had two important consequences for our purposes. First, the new taxes on the barons provoked resistance and in 1215 resulted in the Magna Carta. Now much ado is made about the Magna Carta and there is an entire academic industry asserting that this ado is excessive and exaggerates this instrument's importance or the extent to which its specific promises really codified new ideas. And certainly the Magna Carta's history is checkered, being abandoned and reissued by monarchs regularly thereafter. On its specifics, the document guaranteed that consent to taxation was to be obtained from consultative bodies summoned by the monarch. It also guaranteed that no freemen could be seized, imprisoned, dispossessed of land, or outlawed except by lawful judgment of their peers. This is the embryonic beginnings of the jury trial. And the Magna Carta made a whole series of other promises that are a mix of obscurely medieval and at least the arguable genesis of more lasting rights. But for our purposes, the Magna Carta, or at least the myth of the Magna Carta, is as elegant an historical benchmark as exists for one of the key public law principles I mentioned earlier in this lecture, the rule of law. Because whatever its precise content, the Magna Carta demonstrated that the monarch too could be bound by the law, 
that the monarch was subject to rule and not arbitrary whim backed by physical power. As a leading UK judge puts it, the Magna Carta was important because it represented and expressed a clear rejection of unbridled, unaccountable royal power, an assertion that even the supreme power in the state must be subject to certain overriding rules. Now, we need to pause here on this concept of the rule of law. We've seen it before in earlier modules, and as we shall see, it runs through our current legal system. Many people, however, do not have a clear sense of what rule of law means. Some assume, for instance, that it simply means there must be law. And of course, it does mean that. You need law. Without law, you might as well abandon your law school studies and expend your tuition to procure armaments and aspire to become Mad Max. But the rule of law is much more than simply let there be law. At absolute minimum, it also means at least two other things. First, the rule of law is supreme over any exercise of arbitrary power. Power to be exercised must be authorized by law. Every government official purporting to exercise power must be able to point to some valid law that gives that official the authority to act. And second, it means equality before the law, irrespective of rank or station. All people are subject to the law. Nobody is above the law, including King John during the era of the Magna Carta, or today the Prime Minister, Parliament, or anyone or anything else. The notion that no one is above the law and all public power must trace its exercise to legal authority was revolutionary in the Middle Ages. And that idea now lies in the very marrow of the bones of Canada and any functioning democratic state. Abandon it, and you abandon 800 years of hard-fought principle, and bad things usually happen in those states that do surrender this principle. So one implication of new taxes imposed by the monarch was the Barons' Rebellion and the Magna Carta, and in principle, the Magna Carta had the effect of limiting the absolute power of the monarch. That is, it made the monarch's power circle smaller, something I have portrayed in the video. But there was another, more creeping and evolutionary consequence of taxation. The new taxes imposed on the so-called freemen, non-indentured male inhabitants of England, necessitated their participation in the great council advising the king. And by 1227, these new taxpayers were being included in the great council, assembled sporadically. And by 1295, this great council came to be known as Parliament. The assembly of the lesser individuals, the freemen, became known as the commons, while the assembly of barons eventually came to be called the lords. These representatives were not summoned regularly until the 14th century. However, as parliament had to be summoned when the monarch needed new money, it achieved some leverage. And within parliament, the strength of the commons relative to the lords increased over time as the primary source of wealth in England shifted from landholding barons to the merchants in towns and cities. By the early 1300s, as monarchs needed more and more money, grumpy taxpayers forced the monarchs to summon the parliament, and the commons especially, on a regular basis. Monarchs began swapping redress of grievances raised in the commons with new permission to tax. When the monarch called Parliament, the Chancellor would usually go and explain why the king wanted money, and in return, Parliament would identify a number of grievances they wished remedied. 
Over time, Parliament began serving as a conduit for collective petitions affecting the entire community and requesting action by the monarch. And over time, the monarch wouldn't get any money if the grievances weren't satisfied. These petitions began to take the form of bills, and when accepted by the monarch, would be entered as statutes on the statute roll. And with the passage of time, conventions arose providing that the monarch could only affect a commons bill by rejecting it, not by amending it. The origins of the concept of royal assent. Now, not all monarchs were happy with this situation. And the relative power of parliament as compared to the monarchs waxed and waned. And indeed, in many periods, parliament was an afterthought. And so we fast forward now to the 17th century. And the monarchs have serious financial issues. They have an inflation problem, they are big spenders, and they need new taxes. The chief line of monarchs in this period, the Stuarts, figured they had a divine right to govern and were not happy with the concept of consent. They wanted to levy taxes without parliamentary blessing, and confrontation was therefore inevitable. Now, pressure was ultimately applied in the form of parliament, and parliament got the upper hand, initially in the 1620s through something called the Petition of Rights of 1628. This instrument stemmed from an effort by Charles I to finance a foreign war through forced loans. When those compelled to pay refused, they were jailed, provoking a significant controversy. The commons saw this as an assault on ancient liberties and indeed pointed to the Magna Carta, among other things. Parliamentarians drafted the Petition of Rights of 1628, barring forced loans and this form of detention. And a none-too-happy Charles I yielded to this demand, again setting an important benchmark in the subordination of the monarch to the rule of law. But the fractious relationship between Charles I and Parliament persisted, and Charles stopped calling Parliaments and engaged in an extended period of personal rule, financing activities through dubious revenue-raising that circumvented parliamentary blessing. Unfortunately, Charles found himself in an expensive war in Scotland, and he had to call Parliament to get more money. Parliament, irked, refused to grant such revenue without resolution of many accumulated grievances, which happened to include the impeachment trial and ultimately execution of a key royal official. And then another conflict arose, this time in Ireland, and Charles I and Parliament squabbled over prosecution of that conflict. The ultimate result was a protracted civil war in which the monarch ultimately lost and Charles I was executed. Parliament had demonstrated its superiority, this time in a battlefield. After further warring and the displacement of Charles II, Charles I's successor, the parliamentary faction prevailed and England became for a brief time a republic. But in 1660, Charles II and then later his brother James II were restored as monarchs. James converted to Catholicism, alarming the Protestant ruling class who feared a Catholic counter-reformation. And they invited William of Orange, a Dutch Protestant, to invade England, which he did. And so in 1688, James II was deposed in what has been called the Glorious Revolution. And by the time the next monarchs, William and uh, Queen Mary, came to the throne, that accession came with a condition— a statute had been introduced spelling out exactly what limits existed on the monarch's exercise of power. It limited the monarch's prerogative. The statute also ensured that election to parliament and parliamentary proceedings would be free from royal interference. And it also set out in part how succession to the English throne uh, would be governed. This statute was called the Bill of Rights of 1689. The agreement was struck when William and Mary came to the throne of England, they agreed to abide by the terms set by Parliament in the Bill of Rights. 
Now, when you hear the Bill of Rights, you typically think of the later American version that dealt with individual rights. And the 1689 English Bill of Rights did include some individual rights. For example, a prohibition on cruel and unusual treatment. But it was mostly about codifying the relationship between Parliament and the monarch. No monarch could override or annul the law. Parliamentary independence and authority was proclaimed. The integrity of its proceedings from royal interference guaranteed. And so this was yet another manifestation of the rule of law, subordinating monarchical power to rules. But it also crystallized a second key public law principle, parliamentary supremacy. After the Bill of Rights, Parliament secured legal supremacy amongst the institutions of the state. The monarch was subordinated to Parliament. It was Parliament that was sovereign. After the Bill of Rights, it was conceded that the monarch's prerogative power rested not on divine right, but on popular consent. And as such, it was accepted that prerogative powers could be further limited by Parliament. And these prerogative powers exist to this day, exercised by the executive branch of the state. Put simply, they are the residue of discretionary or arbitrary authority left in the hands of the crown. Because it is a residue, it became the job of the common law courts to determine its existence and extent. And so the royal prerogative simply comprises those powers and privileges accorded by the common law to the crown. And to give you some sense of how diminished these prerogative powers were relative to those of monarchs in the Middle Ages. One, the crown could not legislate. But the crown could, with the concurrence of parliament, create political institutions in English colonies. And in conquer colonies, before these institutions were set up, the crown could pass legislation by royal decree or proclamation. And that, that power, that prerogative, will become important in the next module when we discuss the North American dimensions of Canadian public law. Second, the crown had no prerogative power to administer justice. Only courts could adjudicate disputes according to the law. Third, the common law courts held as early as 1765 that any exercise of the prerogative that infringed on liberty had to be authorized by a statute of parliament. And four, eventually it came to be understood that the prerogative could be further abolished or limited by statute. And prerogative powers have and continue to be displaced in this manner, making them a comparatively rare source of power for the executive branch of the state. So above all, the Bill of Rights was a restraint upon arbitrary behavior by the monarch. The sphere of constitutionally permissible authority was now set out in concrete form, whereas before it waned and waxed in accordance with the relative de facto power of the monarch and parliament, now it was entrenched in a solid line. But something was still missing. As Lord Bingham, a UK law judge, put it in his 2010 book on the rule of law, there is little advantage in the promulgation of laws, however benign, unless there are judges who are able and willing to enforce them. Otherwise, the powers that be can disregard the laws with impunity. But if the judges are to enforce the laws against the highest authority in the state, they must be protected against intimidation and victimization. This, then, is another one of our recurring public law principles, judicial independence. And the concept of judicial independence enters our tale during the reign of George I and the Act of Settlement of 1701. This Act of Settlement controlled ascendance to the throne and, among other things, barred Catholics from being monarchs. But the most important part of this Act for our purpose today, it made judges irremovable except by Parliament. The Crown could no longer meddle with the judiciary by firing them 
The judiciary had achieved, in other words, security of tenure. This was an important, elemental step toward the independence of the judiciary. And so by the 18th century, we have arrived at a diminished monarch who exercises a limited prerogative and a parliament that is supreme and the font of power, competent to further erode the remaining royal prerogative. And along the way, we have established principles of the rule of law, parliamentary supremacy, and judicial independence. And also implicit in this complicated relationship between parliament and the crown, and now the more robustly independent courts, is a fourth principle, the separation of powers. We shall return to this, but the basic idea is that there are three branches of the state. Legislative, that is parliament, judicial, the courts, and the executive. And in the 18th century, the executive was the monarch in the monarch's officials. And under a separation of powers, the different branches have different roles and jurisdiction. Parliament makes laws, the monarch cannot. Judges adjudicate disputes, the monarch cannot. All this should be starting to look more and more modern. But we are obviously some distance from anything that looks like the modern United Kingdom, let alone the modern Canada. For one thing, we are no longer habituated to think about the monarch actually exercising any real power. When we think about the executive branch of the state, we may think of the monarch, but we are much more likely to think about the prime minister, cabinet ministers, and various departments of officials that we collectively call the government. And so there is another development we need to consider, the evolution of real power within the executive branch of the state, flowing from monarch to ministers and then to ministers who are responsible to the legislature. This evolution is a subset of the separation of powers. It is called responsible government. And before we explore it, we need to understand a little bit more about how the monarch exercised these prerogative powers. Because, of course, the monarch did not act without assistance. The monarch had their counselors and assistants, their ministers. Who were these ministers? Well, the concept of ministers developed from the Privy Council. Recall that little council that advised the monarch that dates to the very near beginnings of the origins of English political life. This body, the Privy Council, continued in existence during the period of struggle between Parliament and the monarchs, but it had many members by the time of the Stuarts in the 17th century. So Stuart kings began calling together a small subset of the Privy Council. Initially, this was a little cabal of key royal advisors. And it was called the cabinet because it met in the king's small private room, his cabinet. But in the early 18th century, the monarchs stopped coming to cabinet meetings. And the views of the cabinet were conveyed to the monarch by one of its members, who came to be called the prime minister. And it was the task of this prime minister to convince the monarch to follow the cabinet decision. Cabinet, initially, was just a bunch of the monarch's favorites, not necessarily enjoying popular support from factions within parliament. And so initially, this cabinet had no formal connection to Parliament. However, the monarch eventually found it expedient to choose a ministry that was not faced with a hostile House of Commons, and therefore the monarch preferred to select ministers who would have the support of the House. Over time, a party system developed in Parliament, and the monarch came to agree that in choosing ministers, the monarch would accept the leaders of the faction in the House of Commons that enjoyed its support. And support of the commons translated into the party that had the most number of members of parliament, or at least the party that controlled the most number of votes in parliament. That is, the party that enjoyed the support of a majority in the House of Commons. 
And during this same period, conventions grew about when the monarch would exercise their remaining prerogative powers. And the key principle became, whenever possible, the monarch was to act on the advice of a responsible minister, often the prime minister. That is, the monarch no longer exercised their prerogative powers unilaterally at their own discretion. And so by the 19th century, the United Kingdom has responsible government. Executive power in practice is not wielded by a king or queen, but by officials who are ultimately responsible to parliament and more specifically responsible to the House of Commons. And indeed, they persist in their offices only at the sufferance and with the consent of the commons. But it is important at this juncture to warn you against correlating responsible government with democratic government. Responsible government means an executive accountable to a legislature. It does not mean a democratic legislature. And even today, some members of the legislature, such as the UK House of Lords and the Canadian Senate, are appointed, not elected. And even with the House of Commons, well into the modern period, membership was decided by an electorate that fell well short of today's one adult, one vote. Most famously, women were excluded from voting well into the 20th century, and in the 19th century, there were significant property requirements to vote. This began to change in 1832 in the United Kingdom with the passage of the Reform Act. Now, the Reform Act did not mean universal suffrage. It reduced but did not eliminate property requirements on voting, and women continued to be excluded. But the purpose of the Reform Act was to make Parliament a more representative body, a more democratic body, and it was the first real step in a long chain culminating ultimately in universal adult suffrage in the 20th century. Beginning after the Reform Act, members of the Commons now had to be elected by a more general electorate, not just nominated by a small body of people. In practice, this meant that control of the Commons shifted from the elite to a more general electorate. This then had a knock-on effect on membership in cabinet. Since by convention the cabinet was selected from the faction that commanded a majority of votes in the commons, the cabinet came to be populated by persons with a more truly democratic legitimacy, reflecting not the will of a small group of people, but of a growing electorate as a whole. And so at long last, starting in the 1830s, we have in England something called responsible government and something that begins to approximate democracy. And as we shall see in Canada, we too have responsible government in which ministers stay in office only so long as they enjoy the support of a democratic House of Commons. We call this the confidence convention in the sense that the ministry must enjoy the confidence of the House of Commons to remain in office. This truth tends to surprise some people not properly apprised of our system of government. Some people think that they vote for ministers and they vote for governments. In our system, no one ever has. They vote for members of parliament who then have the power to determine the fate of ministers. Indeed, as we shall see in the next module, reformers in two North American colonies, Upper Canada and Lower Canada, today's Ontario and Quebec, fought rebellions to achieve this responsible government principle in Canada. So to end this module, by the mid-19th century in the United Kingdom, we have a public law system built on the notions that all people even the most powerful are subordinate to the law, the rule of law. That parliament and not the monarch is the supreme political and legal authority, parliamentary supremacy. That judges may enforce the rule of law and are therefore independent of the monarch and executive government, judicial independence. That we have a separation of powers between parliament, the judiciary, and the executive that, among other things, provides that the ministry must enjoy the confidence of the House of Commons. We also have 
the separation of powers and responsible government. And we have the true beginnings of democracy through an expanded voting entitlement, one that will continue to expand through to the 20th century. In the next module, we examine how all this United Kingdom history became relevant to a handful of distant and rather unimportant British North American colonies. This ends Module 3.